We have a confessional faith where we are confessing our allegiance and uh, fellowship to the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's not just some sort of cold, archaic, um, intellectual type of confession. It is a singing faith where we celebrate and honor and, and worship and praise the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the giver and the author of our faith. And the book of Hebrew tells us that he's also the perfecter of our faith. I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and find your place in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. Psalm thirty-three, twelve says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his inheritance. There was once a time when America considered itself a nation whose God was the Lord. But I believe all of us can agree this morning that that is no longer the case for our nation. It's no longer the, the mantra of our nation. Our money may say, in God we trust, but the way we live our lives as a nation would speak otherwise. Today, God has been rejected. Man has replaced him in our culture and in our nation. America has become a nation is, that is tolerant of anything and everything but the God of the Bible and the teaching of the Bible. In this secular increasingly secular world. I mean, we're getting more and more secular as the day goes by. But in this increasing secular world in which we live, it's easy for Christians to become disillusioned. Sometimes we'll talk to people in our church or people outside of our church who are followers of Jesus Christ who are really disillusioned by what we're seeing happening in our culture. I mean, if you've got any age whatsoever, uh, you understand the, 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 the steps that we've taken as a nation culturally, how far we have gone. You can turn the television on and, and see that the programs that we are airing today are far different than the programs that were aired 20, 30, 40, even 50 years ago. Sometimes we can become disillusioned uh, at what's happening in our culture. We may not know how to respond. We may think that this is the first time this has ever happened in history. Let me just assure you this morning, this is nothing new. Ecclesiastes 1.9, Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. And so we should not become disillusioned. This growing antagonism toward Christianity, this growing antagonism we see that is toward the gospel is nothing new. The rejection of God that we are seeing in our culture is akin to the rejection of God that we see in the Bible where Israel rejected God. In fact, as we are here reading in the book of Nehemiah, we are seeing the fallout or the repercussions of Israel and Judah's rejection of God. We see rejection all throughout church history. We can go to Europe. I was talking with someone the other day about going and traveling through Europe and you see these beautiful cathedrals and these beautiful places of worship where Christians used together in worship. They used together in these buildings that are magnificent to honor and praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But today they are nothing more than museums or closed up buildings. I remember the first time I was in Amsterdam years ago traveling through and we had to stay overnight and so we went and, and did some visiting there in Amsterdam, which Amsterdam is a beautiful city with all the waterways and different things. And we went over to see where Anne Frank had lived and hid out during the Holocaust time. And there we're close to Anne Frank's house is a beautiful cathedral with a gold dome on it. But all of the doors were locked and boarded up. You couldn't even go in it any longer. It was a place probably where the king would have been crowned, and yet today it was a place that you would not even go into. They were selling things around it, markets. You could buy fruits and vegetables outside of it. 
We see the rejection of God all throughout history. We see it in Europe where it has become grossly secular. In fact, the rejection that we are seeing is the same type of rejection that Paul warned Timothy about in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he there told Timothy that the people in latter, in latter days would reject the truth. They would follow teachers who would suit their own passions. Is this not what we see in our culture today? Secularism seems to be taking over and ruling every corridor of our culture. In fact, America today, because we've rejected truth by and large, today America is confused about gender identity. Today in America, we are confused about our sexual orientation. Today in America, we are confused about morals. What is immoral or what is moral? Or is there anything that could be deemed as immoral? We are confused as a nation. We're confused as a culture. Political correctness has replaced common sense. Common sense. I remember hearing, I didn't hear it personally, but I remember hearing someone tell me what Jerry Falwell once said about the homosexual agenda. And he just said, and excuse me for this, but it's Jerry Falwell's voice. The plumbing's wrong. Common sense. So what's amazing is that in this PC and in this secular environment, there was a voice of truth who by and large had the nation's ear for most of his life and most of his ministry. Over the past two weeks, our nation has paused to celebrate the life and the ministry and the incredible message of Dr. Billy Graham, the son of a dairy farmer from Charlotte dedicated his life to serving God. He dedicated his life to sharing the good news of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ with people. In fact, you've probably heard these, these numbers. It's estimated that during his life and ministry, he had the opportunity to preach the gospel and, and to bear witness to the glory of God to over 215 million people worldwide on all sorts of platforms. What he's most famous for, perhaps, are the crusades where he would fill stadiums by the thousands Preach the gospel and see people respond in repentance and in faith. Billy Graham was a counselor and a friend to 12 United States presidents. He was one upon whom the nation called in time of crises. If you remember back when 9-11 took place, he was the one who was called upon by George W. Bush to stand before our nation and preach the word of God and call our people to faith in the Lord. And thus, he was dubbed as America's pastor. See, in a culture that continued to move further and further into secularism and further and further away from the Judeo-Christian ethic upon which this nation was founded, I am amazed that Dr. Graham had the ability to transcend that and was able to have the ear of the nation. Did he have, every, did he have everyone's ear? Absolutely not. But for the last 10 to 12 days, our nation has paused by and large, and listened to the gospel once again preached, even in his death. That's amazing to me. As I looked over his life, and as I've reflected upon his life, as I watched his funeral on Friday, and I don't know why I'm getting emotional, but <laughs> I cried like a baby during the funeral Friday. Kara could attest, she kept asking me, do you need tissue? I was like, no, I got my shirt. And I, um, I, I don't know why it's so emotional to me, but... Um, and then the power went out right where before Franklin got up to preach. And so I pulled the phone out and, and watched it on my phone. But I was amazed over the last couple of weeks just watching all this, how even in his death, Billy Graham still spoke. 
What we see in Billy Graham is a good leader. A leader much like what we see in Nehemiah. Nehemiah was this great leader, this man who could lead the people of God into a new day for them. And even in this leadership role, even in this new day that he was leading him, we need, we need to understand this morning as we talk about leadership, like we said last week, leadership is a very daunting task. It's a very dangerous task. It is something that is frightful many times. As I shared last week, James McGregor Burns asserts that leadership is one of the most observed and yet least understood phenomena on earth. We, can, we, we know what leadership is when we see it. We know when we don't see it. But yet at the same time, we don't fully understand what it means and, and, and how to lead. Countless books fill our bookshelves and fill our bookstores. There's all sorts of publications on this subject. And yet there still seems to be gross misunderstanding of what leadership is. This quote I shared with you last week from J. Oswald Sanders from his book, Spiritual Leadership. He says, leadership is influence. It is simply the ability of one person to influence others. Then Robert Clinton in his book points out that the central task of leadership, viewing it strictly through the lens of faith, through the lens of Christianity, says that leadership is influencing God's people towards God's purpose Therefore, the leader, leadership is fundamental to the health and vitality of any organization. I mean, in times of crisis, we need leaders who will stand and lead people to where they need to be, who will comfort people and secure people and, and, and do what's necessary to help people move from where they are to where they need to be. That's what leadership is. It's fundamental. John Maxwell reminds us that everything rises and falls on leadership. Therefore, today, as followers of Jesus, we need good leaders in every realm of life. We need good leaders in the political realm of this country. As we, as we lament how we have moved away from the Bible, we've moved away from the gospel, we need people who will stand and not bring in a theocratic uh, regime in our nation. We are not that but will stand on the Word of God and will lead and, and legislate on the Word of God. We will call the things that are good, good, and will call the things that are evil, evil. We need good leaders leading in the business realm of this world. We need good leaders leading in the churches, and we need good leaders leading in the school systems. We need good leaders in every realm of life. We for sure need good leaders in the home. Mom and dad need to be leaders who will lead their children instead of what we are seeing in our culture, and that is the kids leading mom and dad. So this ought to cause us to ask a question. What makes a good leader? We find the answer, at least in part, in the life and in the example of Nehemiah. So I want you to take your Bible and let's read this passage that we will now read for the fourth time. Someone asked me a few weeks ago, how long do you think it'll take to get through Nehemiah? I don't know. I, my plan was to preach Ju Judges and Nehemiah last year, and we just preached Judges last year, so we'll be here. It's actually going to speed up quite a bit here in this next uh, chapter. Verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9. Nehemiah says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few, with, few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. 
There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered, the, entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you were doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem." Most of us, because we've now looked at this passage for the fourth Sunday, have a pretty good understanding of what's going on here in this passage. We know that Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king. We know that he had heard the report of the sad and shameful state of the people of God back in Jerusalem. He heard the report of the shameful state of the city itself. And so he was moved to act. He was moved to pray. He was moved to seek the face of God. And so for four months he seeks God. He, he contends with God. He, he, he petitions the Lord asking for an opportunity to speak to the king. And all the while, those four months, he's preparing. He's thinking through what is going to need to happen. He's thinking through what needs to build, what, what sort of materials are going to be needed, and all of the things that would go into rebuilding the shameful state of the city of Jerusalem, all the things that would go into rebuilding the shameful state of the people of Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, after months of prayer and preparation and a lot of patience, the day came for him to speak before the king. The king heard his request, the king answered his request, and all of a sudden he's appointed as the governor of Judah. He's sent off with an entourage with letters in hand for all the things needed to build the wall and to restore the gates and to bless the people of Judah. And then upon arrival, Nehemiah immediately begins to work. He assesses the situation. As we've read here, he shares the vision and he inspires the people to the work. Under his leadership, we know that the wall was repaired and the gates were restored in just 52 days. From him, we learn all kinds of wonderful lessons about what it means to be a good leader. We see here five traits that apply to the Christian husband who seeks to lead his home well. We see five traits that apply to the business person who seeks to lead his or her company well. We seek here five traits that would bless the teacher in the public school who would seek to lead her or his students well. In every realm of life, these five traits are applicable. Last week we touched on two of them. Let me briefly overview those first two, and then we're going to conclude with the final three. First of all, we see a good leader is first a good follower. A good leader is first a good follower. We see in chapter 1 clearly how, how Nehemiah was a leader, yes, but he was a leader because he was first a follower. 
When he heard the report, he immediately goes to the Lord. He immediately goes to seek the face and the heart of God and the hands of God. He's listening to the Lord. He's following the Lord's leadership. He's not just running out and doing his own thing. He needs to hear from heaven. The Bible would call us to caution our ambition in the area of leadership. And yet at the same time, the Bible would would fan and fuel the flame of ambition in the area of leadership. It comes down to, will we follow the Lord? If so, that will make a good leader. If we won't follow the Lord, we will be a poor and selfish leader. Nehemiah was a good leader. He was a leader who followed the Lord, and thus he aspired to help the people there in Jerusalem. And yet he never sought a position of, uh, of, of privilege for himself. He always was concerned about the Lord, and he was always concerned about others. He first followed God. The second trait we see about a good leader is that a good leader takes time to rest. When Nehemiah comes to the city of Jerusalem, knowing all that was needed, all the work that was needed to be done, we would expect him to immediately jump into the work, and yet that's not what he does. He takes three days to recoup. He takes three days to rest and to have solitude and to, to allow the Lord to refill his tank, if you will. He has spent four months praying and preparing. He has spent four months traveling to Jerusalem from Susa. And so now as he arrives there, he needs, to, he needs to rest in order to be at his best for the work. Many times, as I shared last week, many times when we have this high in our life, when we have this great victory in our life, on the backside of that victory is too often either a time of depression or a time where you give in to temptation. Nehemiah needed to make sure because he had won so many victories. He he had prepared and prayed and patiently sought the face of God. And then God responded with such favor, allowing King Artaxerxes to to respond and give him everything that was requested. And then he arrives with all of these things after four months of travel. It would have been easy for him to kind of sit back and say, man, this is going to be a breeze. Or it would have been easy for him to let his guard down and to fall into temptation. And so what Nehemiah does here is he rests so that he can be at his best. So that he doesn't become depressed and he doesn't fall into temptation. We need times in our life where we are resting and relaxing and rejuvenating or allowing the Lord to rejuvenate ourselves. In fact, Jesus himself modeled this personally, and yet he also called his disciples to model this in their own life. On the back end of feeding the 5,000 there in Mark chapter 6, what does Jesus call them to do? He says, come away with me. After this great m- m- miraculous event, as, as they saw Jesus do these wonderful things and, and participated in this great miracle, they would have easy, been easy prey for depression or easy prey to be tempted to think more of themselves than they should. And so Jesus calls them away to get alone by themselves to a desolate place and to rest a while. We need to be followers of Jesus who know how to rest in him and know how to rest from our labor so that we can be refreshed to get back in to the labor. The third trade I want to share with you this morning is this. A good leader collaborates with others. A good leader collaborates with others. Nehemiah knew and he understood the great need in Jerusalem. But as he went out to inspect the walls and to look at the gates himself, he took others along with him. Look at verse 12. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. 
But at this point, he hadn't yet told them what he was going out to do. But he still took others along with him to co-labor with him. Nehemiah here models for us a great leadership principle that John Maxwell calls the law of significance. That is, in other words, one is too small a number to achieve greatness. One is too small a number to achieve greatness. The only one who could ever do anything great is the one true God. Amen? He's the one who spoke creation into existence. He's the one who formed us of the dust and breathed life into our lungs. He's the only one who's ever done anything great. But you and I who are finite, we co-labor with others. We can't do anything great in in and of ourselves. We, first and foremost, have to have the Lord's blessing and the Lord's provision in everything that we do. And then so many times in our life, if not in every situation, God puts other people around us to do something great. But for some reason, as humans, we like to admire the solo achievement. I think it's something of the flesh. We like to do something on our own. We all like this. In fact, I remember in high school, I was an athlete. I played football, basketball. I played a little baseball, and I ran track. And I loved all of those sports still to this day. Loved all those sports. I love to watch all of them. Last night, I watched my Arkansas Razorbacks uh, lay an egg in Columbus, Missouri. We had the lead for a little while, and then we just let it go. And, and uh, we'll go limping into the tournament this coming week instead of as a as a number four seed, as a five or six seed. And so we'll play an extra game to the glory of God. Amen? But I love sports. I love athletics. But I really, really love the solo aspect of track. Uh, I remember my senior year really working hard because I knew I wasn't going to go play college football and I knew I wasn't going to do anything else. And so here's my last hoorah, so let's get everything we have before we graduate. And so I remember my senior year being the most focused I was ever at or ever the greatest focus I ever had on track was that year. And so I gave it my all and I loved being in the track meets and winning individual achievements and doing all these things. And I think the reason I enjoyed it the most is because when I was competing, it felt like I was competing alone. When I was winning, it felt like I was winning alone. But the reality is, is when I lost, I also lost alone. But the greater reality was, is that I was never alone in all of that. You see, I had a coach who was coaching me, and I had teammates who were running and training along with me. In fact, I remember in the off-season or the indoor season, I actually was training in the indoor track with my biggest rival who went to the rival school. And so we were doing sprints, the 60-yard or the 60-meter indoor uh, sprint. We were actually training alongside of each other as, as friends and yet as enemies because we met on the track quite often. And so even in that, when I was training against my rival, I was not training and running alone. I was training and being encouraged and strengthened and challenged by someone else. I was never competing alone. I was always competing as a team. So the belief that one person can do something great is is nothing more than a myth. See, nothing of, of significant was ever achieved by an individual acting alone. If you peek below the surface, what you will find is that all seemingly solo acts are really team efforts. Therefore, a good leader believes in the people around him or her. A good leader is going to see the people that are making up the team and understand that they didn't get there as the leader by themselves. They got there and they achieved whatever it is they're achieving because others were around them supporting and encouraging and strengthening and helping them to meet the goal. A good leader believes in the people 
around them. We see this in the Bible. Paul believed in Timothy. Elijah believed in Elisha. Moses believed in Joshua. The Lord Jesus believed in Simon Peter. Simon Peter, the one who said, Lord, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Lord, if everyone else leaves you, I won't leave. I will die for you. And Jesus knew that wasn't true. And yet Jesus, I mean, knowing the future, knowing everything that was going to happen, believed in Peter so much so that he changed his name from Simon, which means wavering one, to Peter Petros, which means the rock. So Nehemiah also believed in the few men that he took on this short recon mission. And he believed in the men of Jerusalem who would rebuild the wall with him. As a good leader, co-laborers, or as a good leader who co-labors with others, he or she also supports and invests in them. So you believe in those who are around you, you support and invest in them as well. And when the people became discouraged because of the threats from Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and all these people, uh, this good leader, Nehemiah, supported and invested in the people of God. Nehemiah encouraged them, we see in, in chapter 4, verses 7 through 14. He didn't criticize them for their, for their lack of faith. Instead, all, what he did is he always called them to remember the Lord and to remember the Lord's greatness. He invested in their spiritual life. Nehemiah also, in addition to that, challenged those that he co-labored with on this project. Chapter 2, verse 17, he says, you see this trouble that we're in. That Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. He's challenging them to the work. And he called them to a great task. He called them to seek after God. And so a, co- a good leader collaborates, co-labors with others. He or she understands that it might be easier to go it alone, but going it alone will never produce something great. I- I'll just be honest, sometimes... It's easier, at least on the surface, seems to be easier to do it ourselves. One of the things I've had to really learn, and I'm still not great at at all, is to delegate. Because it's so much easier for me to just do everything, right? In the office or in ministry, it's so much easier for me to do it. I can, I can control those things, and I won't be let down by someone else. And if I, if I don't get to it, I, you know, it's just it's on me. God hasn't called us to do that. He isn't, that's not a good leadership style. In fact, that's what G, uh, Moses' uh, father-in-law, Jethro, comes to him there in, in Exodus and says, what you're doing is not good. You're wearing yourself out and you're wearing the people out. Allow some others to come alongside you and carry this burden with you. Learn how to co-labor with others. Going it alone will never result in multiplication, and yet multiplication is what the Great Commission calls us to. And so this morning, if you're a small group leader, who's co-laboring with you? Is your small group all about you as a teacher? You come in and you do the announcements, you come in and, and, and you pray and you come in and, and you do the teaching and you come in and, and you do everything else and everything rises and falls is on your ability and your presence. That's not a good leader in the small group. So I want to encourage you as a small group leader, make sure that you are investing in someone else. You're raising someone someone else up under you so that your small group is growing and and multiplying as the Great Commission calls us to. And so that you can launch others out from your small group. But you can't do that if you're not co-laboring with other leaders and raising them up and developing them and sending them out to do the work of the gospel. 
It's true of our adult small groups. It's true of our precious preschool ministry. It's true of children's ministry. Every area of our church ministry. If you are leading, you need to make sure that you're bringing someone else along with you. That you're co-laboring with others. Investing, supporting, encouraging others in the work of the ministry. A good leader collaborates with others. Quickly, fourth trait is a good leader inspires others. A good leader inspires others. Nehemiah here in verses 17 and 18 in sharing this vision that the Lord had put in his heart sought to inspire the people to join him in this work. See, it was they who would, were going to be his teammates. It was they who were going to be his co-workers and his colleagues. And he needed them and they needed him. So he's inspiring them. And here we find a great principle to remember. Great organizations are not built on programs and projects. Great organizations are built on people. The greatest asset we have as a church is not our programs and our ministries. The greatest asset we have are the people who make up the body called Red Lane Baptist Church. We will build our ministries upon, obviously, the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus, but also upon the people of God. So a great church is not built on programs, it's built on people who are being transformed by the grace and the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus. Here's a good leader, Nehemiah is inspiring the people to look beyond themselves and to accomplish something that they couldn't do on their own. He's inspiring them to do something that they hadn't even imagined. Oh, they wanted the walls to be built, but it never crossed their minds that they could actually go and build the walls and restore the gates. And so how did he inspire them? couple things. He believed in the people. He says in verse 17, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Here, by inviting the people to join him, Nehemiah expressed his belief in them. I mean, you don't invite someone to join you if you don't believe in what they're going to do. If you've ever... been out on the playground and elementary school and you're being you're picking teams right playing soccer softball kickball whatever it is when you're picking teams you don't pick the people that you think are terrible right those people if you ever got picked last I'm sorry but I'm gonna offend you the people you think are not worth being on your team get picked last right Nehemiah comes to the people and he says, well, this, is about, this is what we're about to do God's put this in my heart this is what we need to do I want you to be first pick on my team He's inspiring them because he believed them or believed in them. So secondly, he invested in the people. It says, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. He's, he's investing in the people of God. Nehemiah here is sharing his stories, modeling faithfulness by example. He didn't call them to a spiritual idealism, a place that not even he was able to achieve. What he did is he called them to join him where he was and where he was going. Here's another great example to remember. If you want others to grow, you need to grow. If you want the people in your small group to grow and develop in their faith, it all is upon you. If you're not growing, if you're not being that example, those around you will not grow because there's no example to follow. The leader who's not growing is no longer leading because you cannot take someone where you're not going. You can't expect people to go with you if they don't see that you're serious about what you're talking about. I love what Johnny Hunt says, your example is a whole lot more inspiring than your exhortation. So your example ought to match what you're calling people to do in your life. A leader inspires others. And the greatest way you can inspire others is by modeling before others a life of service, of selflessness, and of leadership. 
The fifth and final trait that I want to share with you is a good leader deals with conflict. A good leader deals with conflict. Conflict is inevitable. Can we all agree with that? Now, we would love for it not to be true, right? We would love to, to live and go through even one day of our life with no conflict whatsoever. But if your home's like my home, you get up in the morning, and it's there. Immediately, it's there. I, I got a nine-year-old. She turned nine years old in, in January, and it's like the f- switch flipped in her life. Everything, and got, I mean, we love her, but she's a nine-year-old. You, if you've got a nine-year-old, if you had a nine-year-old, you know what I'm talking about. Everything is a federal case with her. I mean, it's like an emotional breakdown every single morning. Conflict is always there. Conflict is inevitable. So it's not if it's going to happen, it's when it will it happen. Nehemiah, though, as he's uh, coming to Jerusalem and about to embark on this uh, adventure, is not surprised by the conflict, conflict that he's facing from Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. In fact, he anticipated some level of conflict with King Artaxerxes. We see that in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, verse 4. I mean, he was ready for the conflict, that he did, and he dealt with it. When I think about this, I'm convinced that this is the one area of leadership that most leaders shy away from. Right? If, if you're in leadership, even in, the own, in your own home, we oftentimes will shy away from conflict. And it's understandable. No one likes conflict. In fact, the leader who thrives on conflict is the leader you should shy away from, right? If you have a person that you are having to to follow and they love the conflict and they love to fight, that's probably a person you need to keep a little bit of distance from because that's not the best example. Now, I like a good fight maybe as much as anybody. I mean, I was watching a little bit of the prelims last night with... um, with UFC and saw a pretty good knockdown that was act- or knockout actually is after the bell rang and, and he was disqualified for it. But I, I like a good fight, but I don't want to thrive on fighting, right? There's, there, there's a time to fight, Ecclesiastes says, but there's also a time for peace. So we shouldn't follow leaders who are all about the conflict, but as a leader we should also not shy away from conflict when it needs to be addressed. So we shouldn't like it, but neither should we avoid it. There are times when the leader must address an issue or a problem. And that time had come for Nehemiah. His three rivals, as we've already seen, were spreading rumors and telling lies about the plans that he had. They were seeking to create fear in the hearts of the Jews. And as the God-appointed leader, Nehemiah here could no longer stand up brown and, and, and be silent. He could no longer do nothing. And as a good leader, he went and he dealt with the conflict. Verse 20. He has a conversation with them. And so here's a question that we need to be asking. How should Christians deal with conflict? How do we deal with conflict in the home, in our business, in in our friendships, even in the church? How do we deal with conflict? Well, good thing is we have an example from Nehemiah, and we have the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. So the Bible speaks very clearly to how we should deal with conflict. Let me share with you uh, just three, (coughs) three simple things. Number one, keep your head. When you're dealing with conflict, keep your head. What does Nehemiah not do here? He doesn't yell. He doesn't scream. He doesn't threaten. He doesn't curse. He keeps his head. He spoke calmly, and yet he spoke confidently. See, losing your head won't accomplish anything positive. There's an old saying, and I'm probably saying it differently, but when you get down into the pig pen with the pigs... 
both parties get dirty, right? You start smelling and looking just like that old filthy pig, even though you may be in the right, but when you get down in the mud and the muck, you get filthy too. So keep your head. Take some time to think through the issue. Ask the Lord to speak and to reveal anything truthful about the accusation or the problem. Ask Him for, uh, for Him to show you blind spots. Because oftentimes, though it may be someone coming at it from the wrong perspective, but God wants you to learn something about you or about what you're doing or how you're leading, even, if, even though it's coming from a conflicting or a, a difficult perspective. You need to take some time and do some self-assessment and ask the Lord to show you their blind spots in your life. Never react out of emotion. Easier said than done. But keep your head. Secondly, keep your faith. Remember that God is bigger than the conflict you're facing. Its reality is no surprise to him. The fact that you're dealing with whatever it is you're dealing with from a conflict standpoint, it didn't surprise the Lord. He wasn't sitting on his throne and and all of a sudden angels rushed in before him and says, Lord Jesus, did you know that so-and-so was dealing with this? And he kind of threw his hands up on his head and said, oh my, I didn't know that. That's not the way the Lord operates. He's not surprised. Trust that in God's sovereignty, He is using this trial to deepen your faith, to expand your character. Trust that He will see you through to the end. So how does this happen in Nehemiah's life? Nehemiah's faith is not shaken by the lies and the rumors that are being spread. He's not, he's not shaking. He's not frustrated. Well, he may be a little bit frustrated, but he's not frustrated to the point of, uh, of lashing out. He's frustrated at the situation because it... it, it, it it had the potential to kind of blow everything up in his face, but he dealt with it the way he should. So he's not surprised. His faith is not shaking. He didn't fear repercussions from the king because he trusted in the God who had given him favor with that king. He trusted. His faith was secure. So don't be easily shaken in your faith. As a leader, constantly learn to lean on, into the promises of God. Keep your faith. Thirdly, speak the truth. Nehemiah here spoke the truth into the face of those who were creating the conflict. Verse 20 speaks directly to them. He says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. He ends this verse by saying, you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. In other words, hit the road, Jack. He reminded Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem that their fate, or that the fate of their project rested in the hands of the God of heaven, not in the hands of King Artaxerxes. He spoke the truth. The Bible calls us to speak the truth in love. And many times in our life, when there's an issue or a problem, what we need to do is we need to go to a person in the conflict with us and face-to-face, one-on-one, speak the truth to them in love. Not screaming, not yelling, not cursing, not, not losing our head, not, not losing our faith, but just going to them and saying, brother, sister, this is the issue. Here's the truth. Let's hash this out. Let's come to a mutual understanding. Let's come to restoration in this relationship. We need to speak the truth and to do so in love. We need to shoot straight with those who are creating the problem, addressing it personally. But if there's no repentance, if there's no movement toward reconciliation, then what Matthew 18 would call us to, what Jesus said there, is that we're to go and get another brother or sister and go back and have this conversation again. If there's still no reconciliation, there's no repentance, we bring them before the church and we let the church decide on the situation. Even so much so as casting them out of the church. We need to deal with conflict, and dealing with conflict is never fun. But I've learned, 
I've not mastered, but I've learned that the longer a leader allows the turmoil to fester, the more dangerous and the more disastrous it will become. There's been moments over the last two and a half years where I have quickly dealt with a conflict or an issue that I heard about, and I dealt with it quickly and uh, promptly because I knew that if it festered, it would cause more problems than if I didn't deal with it, or if I did deal with it. But there's been other times where, over the years of my ministry, where I've, I've not said anything to my demise, to the hurt of the church or the hurt of other relationships. Think of conflict like this when it's not dealt with rightly and promptly. It's like a tiny rusty splinter that gets under your skin. You can deal with it quickly, which will hurt for a moment, or you can, you can deal with it later, and then infection will set in, which could lead to all kinds of other problems. Even so much so, the blood infection, and you lose a limb, right? And those are extremes. I remember, and this is gross, but I remember one time um, I was in college. I just want to preface that. That's 1010. How about that? Um, I remember it was on my thumb, I think. I don't remember what part of my thumb. But I was driving down the road, and I was in college, and I, we lived, we owned a chicken farm way out in the country, so I was probably got a splinter working on the farm or something. But I guess I'd let it go, and it got infected. And so I was driving along, and I was kind of just, and I bite on my hands a lot, especially when I got a, I pick at scabs and stuff. And I remember just kind of messing with it, and that sucker popped in my mouth. <laughs> Told you it was gross. Told you it was gross. I spit for like 10 minutes. <laughs> it hurt like crazy. I think that's why I was biting on it because I just, you know, I didn't deal with it. And then all of a sudden I was grossed out because of it. A good leader will deal with comp. Boy, that was a terrible story. That was not in my notes, I promise. We, we learn and, and see and are reminded in Nehemiah that everything rises and falls on leadership. It's absolutely crucial in every organization. It's absolutely crucial at every level of society. It's paramount in the church as well. So we, need to, we, we, need, we know how easily it can be abused. We, know how, we see it all the time in, in, in the public domain how leadership is abused. But we also know and we see in Nehemiah the blessing that it is when it's done right. What it can do to our homes, what it can do to our church, what it can do and how it can be a blessing to our communities when leadership is done right. And so here we find five traits of a good leader. My question is this, how are you doing in these five areas of leadership? How are you leading your home? How are you leading in your work? How are you leading in our church? What are you doing in our community? You think about Nehemiah, you think about Billy Graham. We started with Billy Graham. What is it that made them such good leaders? Is it because they read a bunch of leadership books? Is it because they attended a bunch of conferences and learned some principles and learned some, some, some action plans for good leadership? That's not it at all. First and foremost, they were a follower of God. They were faithful men. Nehemiah believed God, trusted in God, looked forward to the day when a Messiah would come, the Messiah that we know as Jesus. Billy Graham heard the gospel at the age of 16 and gave his heart and life to Jesus. And there in college, knelt down in Florida and says, Lord Jesus, I'll serve you to the ends of this earth. Whatever you want me to do, I'm yours. That's what made him such a good leader. He was teachable. He was faithful. He was obedient. It all starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so as we bring this message, this service to a conclusion, I want to encourage you this morning that no matter what's going on in your life, 
it needs to always begin and end with Jesus. So if you're not in relationship with Jesus today, notice I didn't say if you're in relationship with a church or in relationship to a small group, anything like that. I'm talking about if you're not in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, this morning as we have a time of response through song, this is an opportunity for you to come and to say, you know what, Pastor, I may be religious, I may have been a member of this church for X amount of years, but I've never placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I will pray with you. I'll get you with someone who can help walk you through the gospel this morning so that you can say yes to Jesus for the first time in your life. This morning as a Christian, if you are struggling in your devotional life, struggling in your, in, in your, your walk with Jesus, I want to encourage you to just, in this time of response, bear your heart before the Lord. I said earlier that our faith is a confessional faith. Confess your sin. Confess your inadequacies. Confess your faith and belief that God will accept you and, and restore you in your life. Maybe you need to come and just get at this altar or grab someone by the hand and ask them to pray with you. But this is a time for us to respond to the gospel. Others, I know you've been visiting for some time. Maybe it's time God says, hey, it's time for you to begin the process to unite with this church. This is where you need to plant your life and grow and serve and become a leader. Become someone who's going to bless others. Lord Jesus, as we move into this time of response, I pray in the name that is above every name that you'd help us to just respond in faith. Lord, just having conversations this week with different people, it just reminds me of, of how much confusion there is out there. So many times, even people who grew up in church don't fully understand the gospel. And God, they may have a false sense of security about their spiritual life. And to be honest, if they were to die today, they may not make it to heaven. So Lord, I pray that there's a man or woman or even a child in here that's wavering right now of where they're at spiritually. God, you just give them clarity of thought clarity in their heart as to where they're at spiritually. God, if they're lost, I pray this morning they would come bounding down this aisle saying, I want to talk with someone about how to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray for those believers here this morning who, this Lord, need a fresh touch from you. God, maybe things just aren't perfectly right and and God, they need to just hear from heaven and, and be restored and God, maybe even forgiven of some sin in their life. God, I pray in this time of response that they would be willing to just allow your Holy Spirit to search their hearts and reveal any and all sin. And God, we thank you. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we will confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of all sin. God, may that be true this morning. Lord, I pray for others. Perhaps they are visiting and been visiting for a while and you're just beginning to place upon their heart the, the call upon their lives to join you, not with our church officially. And so, Lord, I pray that you just lead them this morning. May they be <clears throat> obedient to, to listen to your voice. God, help us to respond in faith this morning in everything. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.